Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Gilda Evans, bringing you the Autism Resource Podcast. This podcast and the ARP website are your one-stop knowledge and resource base for autism and much more. I'm honored to have Professor Andrew Whitehouse as my guest today. Clinic Kids is led by Professor Whitehouse, based in Perth, Western Australia. He is also the Research Strategy Director of the Cooperative Research Center for Living with Autism and the past president of the Australasian Society for Autism Research. Professor Whitehouse has pioneered effective therapies for babies showing early signs of autism and led the development of Australia's first national guidelines for autism diagnosis and supporting autistic children. As a Eureka Prize winner, he is also regularly called on by the federal and state governments to inform autism policy. In 2021, he became the youngest ever fellow elected to the prestigious Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. Welcome, Andrew. And thank you so much for taking the time to join me today to discuss the important work that you do. Thank you so much, Gilda. Gosh, that intro makes me sound very boring. I hope I'm going to be a bit more interesting today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that part will definitely be up to you because you seem like a very interesting person. So to begin with, tell me about the guideline. What is it all about and how was it developed? Yeah, thank you, Gilda. Look, there's actually two guidelines. Um, One of the challenges that we've had in the areas of autism is the lack of consistency. And the way that I would probably put it is a common truth. The way that we provide best and highest quality um, management in the health and medical field is through by having a common truth, which is essentially a set of practices that we all hang our hat on and say that this represents best practice. In the area of autism in particular, for some reason over the years that we've, we haven't got to that point where we all have a common truth. And so what we'll find is that um, somebody will say that this is best practice and then 10 other people will have 10 other methods of best practice. And if we look at other areas of health and medicine, we see that actually that kind of standard doesn't meet the standard that we should and should expect and and only accept um, in in for our kids and 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 adults on the spectrum. And so, through a series of uh, through a series of decisions by our federal government, I was involved and, and lucky enough to to lead and co lead the development of two national guidelines. And national guidelines are essentially a set of clinical recommendations that define what is best practice in a given area. The first um, guideline was the diagnostic guideline, and that was, well, okay, there are a whole bunch of professionals and um, there is a a whole task that we need to perform uh, uh, to understand uh, uh, how we can best understand who this human is and perhaps that represents a diagnosis of autism. The second one was around um, supporting children, and and, and that was a a guideline for kids aged 0 to 12 years of age uh, with a diagnosis of autism. How do we best provide clinical management for those kids? Um, The the, the broad sort of basis of these guidelines is, as I said, to get that common truth. And so to do that, we had to really lean on those three elements of um, evidence. Number one was um, scientific evidence. What's the scientific evidence in the field? but also um, 
evidence-based practice relies upon an understanding of clinical wisdom as well as the wisdom that individual families and that individual themselves bring to that con- to that that interaction about their own context so through very large programs of research we went out um, and conducted research in all of those areas scientific research but also understanding the views of families and, and clinicians and um, we ended up with two guidelines which are now uh, rolled out across Australia well, can you please give me a brief overview of some of those guidelines, the recommendations in the guidelines, I should say, and what they cover? Absolutely. I'll touch off on the the, the diagnostic guideline first. The key thing there is that um, Australia, like uh, the US, is has a federated model of governance. So we have very strong state governments. Uh, and one of the challenges that we found is that there's been inconsistent diagnostic practices across different states. So it's quite, quite, um, it's not unusual at all for people to cross state borders and have to receive another diagnostic assessment because that original um, diagnosis was not recognised. So the key thing about that diagnostic guideline was that we um, developed consistent practices across the whole of the country, which is a very large exercise to do, very political exercise to do with different professions involved, but we feel like we've achieved that now. The Supporting Children Guideline was the one that we published at the start of this year. That was really how do we provide families with a common truth about what is the what is a roadmap from them from the very earliest moment that they identify that their child is developing differently? So we broke it down into a number of areas. The first area was the guiding principles. The guiding principles, um, I, I get in trouble saying this, but it's kind of like the vibe. Um, so, you know, when before you even walk into a clinic room, what should a clinician be thinking about? How should they be structuring their clinical practice? Um, and, uh, ha, ha, you know, what is the aim of what they're seeking to get out of that interaction with that family? We then really step people through a very sort of step-by-step process. So after the vibe, the guiding principles, we've got goal setting. How do you set goals? And so the goal setting is really around how do we set goals around the child, around the family, and also the environment around that child and family? Um, we then talk about how do you select and plan for the most appropriate supports to meet those goals. Um, and uh, we then go into how do you deliver um, that supports? And then, of course, how do you monitor outcomes? It's so important that we monitor outcomes, um, not just to ensure that the fa- the time that families are spending with us is, 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 is important and that that needs to be honoured, but also how do we ensure things are safe? So we, we can break things down and there are key sort of elements of each section. And I'm happy to go into that, um, but I'll sort of pause there just in, in, in terms of um, providing the high-level guidance. Well, um, I would like a little more detail. If you could maybe talk about now that these guidelines are in place, what does this mean for clinicians and for families? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the first thing is that all of a sudden we have something to hang our hat on, that no matter where you are in Australia, you might be way out in the outback or you might be really in the inner cities, that we know what represents best practice and that that ensures, number one, accountability. Um, every other area of health and medicine has accountability in how we practice. We need that as well in this field. That's just a minimum standard that we should all adopt. Um, but it also means that um, new grads coming out of, of universities all of a sudden have a really clear understanding of, of what's expected of them and how to guide their practice. But I think a key aspect of this guideline is it does, 
does reimagine what therapies and support should be like for autistic kids. Um, it's, it was a very interesting process where a lot of the truisms that existed in the area of providing therapies and supports, when we dug deep into the evidence, those truisms didn't actually hold any water. And so we needed to actually develop new standards about what does represent best practice. And that's going to be challenging for some people because some of these truisms are so baked in. Um, but we, the, the guideline really challenged them head on and actually said, well, actually, based on best evidence, these this is what recommend. Uh, this is what uh, represents best practice according to modern day standards. Well, I'm just curious. Listening to you talk about this, how does one implement now that these guidelines are in place? Yeah. Uh, how does that happen? Well, one of the great things in Australia is that um, uh, we about uh, five years, probably a bit, about 10 years ago, we uh, developed a national disability scheme. And so um, we actually have a joined up federal system now that enables um, uh, that, that all people uh, uh, with a disability touch in some way, shape or form. Previously, that was run by different states and the states really had um, control over that, which meant that there was the kind of implementation was a piecemeal um, uh, thing, but all of a sudden we have a national implementation, um, uh, a national a national system in which once that national system endorses this guideline and says that funding will be apportioned according to that guideline, all of a sudden you've got the carrot and stick incentives that ensure that this is taken up quickly. So, you know, when we think about autism here in the United States, depending upon what study you look at. Um, Anywhere from 1 in 30 to 1 in 36 are the latest figures that you'll find of newly diagnosed individuals every year. Uh, so can you talk to me a bit about aus autism in Australia and yeah. the prevalence that you're seeing in the population there? It, it, it's funny. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have had been in the field for 20 years, and you're exactly right. That sort of the incidence over time and the sort of prevalence now is it has changed dramatically um, uh, when we compare it to 20 years ago. You know, when I got in the field, one in 2,000 kids, and, and they were kids, not not adults, were being diagnosed um, uh, um, with autism. Now, nowadays, we are getting sort of one in 50. Uh, and as you say, those latest CDC figures are around sort of one in 36. Um there are a number of reasons. So in Australia, we see similar increases over time. Um, I think there are a number of reasons for this. Um, one of them is certainly those the expansion of diagnostic boundaries. When I sort of think about the children that are receiving diagnoses now and, and truly do meet criteria for the DSM-5 criteria or the ICD criteria, that they are poles apart from the kids that were receiving diagnoses 20 years ago who tended to be your more, um, uh, you know, classically autistic was the term that was used back then, but really kids with quite frank disability in terms of language disability and, and intellectual um, or cognitive development, whereas nowadays we see kids who, who um, of course, have uh, very high intellectual and cognitive abilities, highly verbal, will run rings around me in the conversation and will say things that I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's smart, but I don't really know what it is, <laughs> um, and everything in between. So certainly that's that's provided a, a, a huge expansion. 
But in Australia, what we've actually started to see is that system factors are driving diagnosis. I mentioned before our National Disability Insurance Scheme, an extraordinary scheme that has changed the lives of many, many families, I mean thousands of families in Australia. Um, one of the things that has um, has occurred, however, is that an eligibility criteria to get into the scheme or to at least receive support via the scheme um, has been a diagnosis of autism. And, and so that it, it's, it has incentivised diagnosis of autism, particularly because um, outside of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, there is no, there's not much support for other kids. And so that we are seeing a group of kids who absolutely require support. You know, they're really struggling, um, but may not meet criteria for autism. But um, and, and so the only way that support is being provided is by, by these children receiving a diagnosis and, and, and entering that, that national scheme. So there are sort of system factors that have also sort of artificially inflated that number uh, as well. Now, I'm not here making a value judgment about this at all. Um, it's, it's, you know, if kids need help, um, families and clinicians could and should do everything they um, can do to get them that help. Um, however, we are sort of certainly seeing sort of an, an artificial inflation along with a true increase over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that certainly makes sense. Now, your mm -hmm. research focuses a lot on early supports and not waiting for a diagnosis to seek support. Yeah. So can you please tell me why early intervention is so critical and what your research has found? Yeah, thanks for that question because it's, it's, it's sort of a passion project for me. And look, I started in clinical practice 20 years ago and, you know, it was we, – we, we – we that the view at that time was that children were um, is that we had to wait and see for allocation of um, clinical clinical resources. The best practice that we could do was actually wait and see till a child really developed quite frank disability, and that's when we start to provide support. And that's often the point of diagnosis. So a diagnosis was seen as the initial point in the diagnostic path in the clinical pathway after which all support kind of stems. But certainly what I was seeing is that there were kids struggling very early in life, you know, often in the sort of first year of life, second six months of the first year of life, we could often see quite that these kids were developing differently quite, quite easily, but we were still waiting and seeing until they get to a diagnostic age of three, four or five, and that's when support was provided. In the meantime, Sure, everything we knew about know about neuroplasticity, about you know the the sort of bang for buck you you can receive by providing support in those early years. Absolutely, that kind of pathways was ignoring that science. But for me, what was happening very more frankly was that families were in the wilderness for two to three years. Is that families knew very early their baby was developing differently, but their calls for help and their pleads often for help were being ignored because systems were not being receptive to their needs. And so what, one thing that I've sort of been really keen to pursue over the last 10 years, and we have, is that what happens if we do respond to parents' needs at that time? You know, certainly be faithful to the, our science about, you know, the importance of neurodevelopment, all of these brain fireworks that are happening in the first 12 months of life. You know, obviously there is great scientific hypothesis there, but what happens if we actually embraced families at that young age rather than sort of almost had a bit of a fending off arm? And um, so through with colleagues at the University of Manchester, La Trobe University, Child and Adolescent Health Service in, in Western Australia, we developed and then trialled 
therapies that for, are for very young babies that, you know, six to 18 months of age where babies are showing early behavioural signs of autism. And what happens if we actually provided a support at that age, which is about empowering families to create an environment around the child that helps the child learn in the way that's best for them. So at that young age, it's not about changing the baby in any way, shape or form. It's, but it's about recognising that babies are developing differently. Actually, firstly, it's about they are beautiful how they come into the world, utterly beautiful. And what our job is is to see if the baby is having a bit more barriers than other kids and how do we remove those barriers. And so in the first, the therapy is really concentrated on, number one, helping parents understand how important they are to their babies. Of course, often parents come to us when their baby's developing differently thinking that their baby really dislikes them because their baby's responding to them in a different way that, that they expect. So the first thing that we do is help parents understand just how much their baby adores them and how much their baby is communicating with them and how important they are to their baby's development. And then we provide, our therapies provide support and empower those parents to help them understand how they can structure a social environment around the child that helps the child learn in the way that's best for them. And through a series of clinical trials, we actually found that these kind of um, um, environment-changing um, supports are actually quite effective in um, helping to um, um, improve child development, also empower parents. And so a couple of randomised controlled trials later, we found that actually these these kids are presenting at later. Like, so we follow these kids. If we recruit them at 12 months, they get a six-month therapy and then we follow them up to age three. What we actually found through replicated randomised control trials, very rare in the in, in in the area of autism, is that we found that actually the the, the levels of autistic behaviours that these kids are showing at three years of age is substantially less or reduced than we see in kids who are in the control group. And this is not to say these kids aren't neurodivergent; they absolutely are neurodivergent. But what they are is that we're reducing disability in the way that they're interacting with the world, and so they can be just whoever they want to be in the world. So it's, it's been a fantastic line of research. Yeah. That sounds amazing. So talk to me a little bit then about Clinicids and the work that you do there and the services that you provide for families. Oh, I'd, I'd love to. So um, I'm based at, uh, in Perth, Western Australia. So Perth, um, for US listeners and outside of the US and outside of um, um, uh, Australia, is on the west coast of Australia. So um, Sydney, Melbourne, the biggest centres are over the, the, the other side. And um, I'm in Perth. Perth is the most isolated capital city in the world. And that, that comes with sort of some negatives, but it's also a very much a source of pride for us in Western Australia. And so we, we get to do things a little bit differently. And I'm based at a medical research institute called the Telephone Kids Institute. Now, for many years, the institute has been a medical research institute, very much research and you know, we were providing research outcomes with the hope that it would one day get into clinical practice. And I, you know, coming from a clinical background, I sort of saw this and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is so um, naive of how clinical practice operates. Nobody has time to look at research when you're in clinical practice. So I, over the couple of years, I pitched the idea to our executive team that why don't we actually be that change that we want to see? Why don't we, instead of there being 20 years for research to go from, you know, a research idea into practice, why don't we actually be the initial implementers of this? So Clinikids is a network of clinics throughout Western Australia and um, and broader um, that seeks to um, embed research within clinical practice. And so um, what happens is that um, families come in and they can receive 
typical services that, that they receive um, um, for a child who's developing differently or a child with a diagnosis of autism. But at the same time, they'd also get in, uh, offered entry into a randomised control trial. Um, um, I'm very influenced by other areas of health and medicine where, you know, often fam- families with a particular condition will get just as a matter of course, but get offered entry into a into a clinical trial of some description. There's no reason we can't do this here in the area of autism, and so that's what I sought to do. So, Clinikids really seeks to be that bridge between clinic and research, and so families get access um, uh, to cutting edge um, therapies um, because for them. 10 years is great. They love the idea of improving the next generation, but also they have their beautiful child and their beautiful family that they want to support now, and we want to be part of that. So here's the million-dollar question. Can those outside of Australia seek your assistance, and how can our listeners find out more? Yeah, look, um, absolutely. So, look, Clinikids has a has an absolute mandate for not just developing research outcomes, but getting it into the hands of every person um, who ever wants it, not just around Australia but around the world. And so, we do that through another way, a number of ways. Certainly through our clinical services. And um, if um, people want to go to um, our website, um, which is um, www clinikids, C-L-I-N-I-K-I-D-S dot telethonkids.org.au. So it's clinikids.telethonkids.org.au. You can see the services that we offer there. The other thing that's really important to us is that actually we want science to get into the hands of everyone because um, we get jaded that we, we think that we've sort of we've arrived in the area of science and, and autism. We haven't. We're, we're just a baby in the field. And so we want the science to get into the hands of everyone. And so we're very in, big on um, science communication. Um, w- one thing that we do is something called 60 Second Science, which is every fortnight on, on our Facebook page, I post a, a video of me with some animations, really talking families through in 60 seconds, or well, that's the that's the mission, um, uh, the latest, um, a latest finding that we think is important that they know about. And it's fa- been fabulous. It's got sort of more than uh, two or three million views over over the last couple of years, and 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 I really recommend that people um go to our Facebook page, which is um, Telethon Kids Autism Team. So that's T E L E T H O N K I D S Autism, and then Team Telethon Kids Autism Team. And if you go to the videos, you can sort of see um, all of our past videos. But if you follow us there, you'll get them in your feed as well. So that's the couple of ways that people can get in touch. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful, and I'm definitely going to take a look myself. And I just want to thank you, Andrew, so much for your time, for the work that you do, and for sharing your story with us today. Oh, thank you, and you too, Gilda. It's been an absolute treat. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular platforms. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always access us and other great resources on our website, autismresourcepodcast.com. I want to thank our listeners for spending part of their day with us. This is the Autism Resource Podcast, and I'm Gilda Evans, reminding you to take care of yourself and that special person in your life.